Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Sunday Dive. Uh, we're doing a stripped down version because that just feels right for Good Friday. Uh, so these are the readings for April 10th, 2020, Good Friday. We're going to look primarily at our gospel, which is from John, and it's a long one. John chapter 18, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 19, verse 42. And typically I read through the entire gospel before we get started. Today I'm going to uh, not read through it entirely, but begin to read through it and take pauses. So before we actually get started, let me give you a brief outline of our gospel from John today. So like I said, it's a long one. First, we get the scene in the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is arrested. Then we'll see Jesus being taken to Caiaphas's house, and there Peter will deny the Lord. And then our Lord will be taken to Pontius Pilate. And the scene with Pontius Pilate, it's pretty long, but if you uh, can discern a structure, and there is a structure in the trial, it becomes a little easier to kind of keep track of. So the trial with Pontius Pilate has what uh, scholars call a chiastic structure, which means there'll be several elements that kind of parallel each other until we get to the kind of inner narrative. And that inner narrative will not have a parallel. And by John using the chiastic structure, we can understand that that inner narrative is kind of the heart of the story. So the chiastic structure, we'll talk more about it when we get there, but the chiastic structure is going to be uh, kind of alternating between Pilate talking to the Jews, then talking to Jesus, then talking to the Jews, talking to Jesus, and on and on. So then after we uh, leave the praetorium, we follow Jesus to Golgotha, to his crucifixion. We'll talk about uh, the garments that John focuses in on, Jesus's garments. And then we have uh, our Lord giving Our Lady to John and vice versa. We have the, the last words of Jesus. It is finished and the blood and water gushing forth from his side. And then finally, St. John gives a, a brief account of Jesus's burial. Let's begin. John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, procuring a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to befall him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When he said to them, I am he, they fell back, to, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. 
Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word which he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews seized Jesus and bound him. All right, so first of all, we find Jesus leaving the upper room where he has finished the Last Supper. He actually is going to exit the city of Jerusalem, and he's going to head east. The Kidron Valley uh, borders the city of Jerusalem on the east. It's a pretty deep valley. He's going to cross the Kidron Valley, and he's going to enter a garden, the garden that we understand now to be the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're told that Jesus often met there with his disciples, which is why Judas knows where to find him. So it was likely that Jesus was staying in Bethany, just on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. This was typical for people who were not from Jerusalem when they came to Jerusalem for the pilgrimage feasts. Jerusalem couldn't hold all the hundreds of thousands of pilgrims. And so they would come into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover because the law prescribed that. But then when they had finished the the Passover, they would leave and they would head back to the place where they're actually staying. So Jesus with his disciples begins to head back to, I think, what we can uh, rightly believe to be Bethany. But he stops in a place typical, probably to rest and pray, but he lingers there and he lingers on purpose to allow himself to be taken by the, uh, the soldiers and the officers of the chief priests. When they come and they find him, we're told they have lanterns, torches, and weapons. This is somewhat ironic considering Jesus has never showed any form of violence, right? But nonetheless, they come with all their show of force, and Jesus kind of takes control of the situation. Um, We can see here the immense amount of freedom he possesses. So Jesus is not taken violently, and he's not resisting being taken. In fact, in an ironic sort of way, he's the one who kind of is, uh, is leading the situation. He's the one who has taken charge. So they come for him and he says, whom do you seek? They answer Jesus of Nazareth. Again, um, it's, it wasn't necessarily, uh, like it is today where we have social media and the internet and television. Um, everyone didn't necessarily know which one of them was Jesus, right? And this is also why Judas had set up, as the synoptics tell us, this sign of a kiss so that they would know that it was him. So he says, Jesus says, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says to him, and this is the RSV translation I'm reading, I am he. But the fascinating thing is that the original Greek, which he speaks, is simply ego eimi, which means I am. And so Jesus answers their question by invoking the divine name. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. And whether they realize it or not, or are willing to recognize it or not, the person whom they seek is divine. And so Jesus, in, uh, in revealing himself as divine, uses the divine name, Ego Amy. And it's fascinating because John goes on to tell us that when Jesus says this, they draw back and they fall to the ground. And this is a, 
This is a typical reaction during a theophany. And we don't know if it was intentional or not. Uh, in fact, there seems to be a mysterious sense in which uh, perhaps they were caused uh, to fall to the ground because the divine name is so powerful that that it, it, it in a way causes them to fall to the ground. All right, and we we it wouldn't make sense to us to have these 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 soldiers coming after Jesus uh, falling to the ground of their own accord. And so Jesus is showing a little bit of his power simply by revealing who he is. But nonetheless, he's not going to use it to save himself from his suffering. Because even though he struggled in the garden with the idea of his suffering, he wants to suffer out of love for us, right? So they draw back and fall to the ground. And then once more, Jesus asks them, whom do you seek? And they answer again, Jesus of Nazareth. And once more, Jesus answers them with the divine name. I told you that ego me, I am. So he goes on to say, if you seek me, let these men go. And then John goes on to say that this was to fulfill what our Lord had said in speaking to the father in his high priestly prayer at the last supper, I have not lost one whom you have given to me. And so Jesus, here in the, in the very beginning of his uh, passion ordeal, we see the great tenderness he has for his followers and the great tenderness that he has for each one of us. He himself is going to take on the suffering. And so he urges those who are coming after him, let the others go to keep them safe, right? to keep them safe. This is a beautiful point of meditation um, because too often we focus too much on the disciples and we focus too much on ourselves and their failure to follow Jesus valiantly. But that can lead to a sort of egoism where we, we focus too much on ourselves. Focus here on our Lord and his great tenderness. I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. And then we're told that Simon Peter takes out his sword and strikes the high priest's slave and actually cuts off his right ear, all right? And Jesus rebukes Peter, saying, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me? And so Peter's actions here are consistent with his reactions previously to the idea of our Lord's suffering. Remember at various times when the idea is brought up, when Jesus himself prophesies that he will suffer, Simon Peter is the first to say, no, no, Lord, you can't. And Jesus always rebukes him. At one point he says, get behind me, Satan, because he must suffer. He wants to suffer. He desires to suffer for love of us. And so even here, Peter's uh, deep-seated reaction to the idea of Jesus' suffering causes him to go to violence, right? But we have to ask ourselves, is Peter's fear of Jesus' suffering or really is his fear deep down his own suffering? Is his fear deep down his own suffering? Are we a little bit like Peter who want to to prevent our Lord from suffering so as to prevent ourselves from suffering. 
Because if Jesus goes before us in suffering, we must follow him. We must follow him. And so in some ways, like Peter, we are uncomfortable with the idea of a God who loves us so much as to suffer for us. Why? Because he calls us to this great love as well. And so Peter needs a reformation of his heart. And we need a reformation of our hearts as well. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews seize Jesus and they bind him. Let's continue reading at verse 13. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had given counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. As this disciple was known to the high priest, he entered the court of the high priest along with Jesus. While Peter stood outside at the door... So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the maid who kept the door and brought Peter in. The maid who kept the door said to Peter, are not you also one of this man's disciples? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing secretly. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness to the wrong. But if I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said to him, Are you not also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a kinsman of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the cock crowed. Okay, so Jesus is taken from the Garden of Gethsemane, first to Annas' house, and then to Caiaphas' house. And in this uh, story, in this little narrative, the section that we've broken off of John's Gospel, it's bookended with Peter, okay? So at first, in the first part, we get Peter... Um, in his interactions with the servants and his first denial. Then we go uh, inside the house to Jesus, who's being questioned by the high priest. And that questioning is not going well. And then this narrative, this section that we've broken off, bookends once more with Simon Peter denying Jesus. What's fascinating here is though we have Simon Peter denying Jesus three times, and we get this in the synoptics as well, John only gives uh, Peter denying him explicitly. John only gives the words of Peter twice, all right? So in the last story, or in the last interaction, at verse 27, John simply tells us Peter again denied it. He doesn't give us the actual words. The words that Jesus, excuse me, the words that Peter uses to deny Jesus are fascinating. 
So if we jump up to verse 17, the maid who kept the door said to Peter, are you not also one of this man's disciples? He said, I am not. I am not. And then again, the same language, if we jump down to verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said to him, are you not also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. Why is this fascinating? Why do I draw attention to this? Because just a few verses earlier, when we see the crowd, the soldiers coming to Jesus and Jesus saying, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He readily identifies himself and he says, I am. And this is a contrast to St. Peter who the people say to him, are you not one of his disciples? And instead of willingly identifying himself with Jesus, he says, I am not. And he uses the negative of the language that Jesus uses. See, when we, on a theological level, when we identify ourselves with our Lord, particularly through the sacraments, we are able to take on our lips the words of Jesus, I am, the divine name, because through the sacraments, I say this all the time, but through the sacraments we have by grace what Jesus has by nature, divine sonship, a share in divine life. And so Peter should be able to take on his lips, identifying himself with Jesus, the words of Jesus, ego, a me, I am, but he doesn't. Rather, he says, I am not. I am not. And we're told the cock crows, just as Jesus had uh, prophesied, Peter would deny him. Um, and this is, this is a helpful little detail for us because, um, the time, the, the nighttime was kept, uh, uh, by watches. Okay. So the nighttime was divided into, into four watches. So you had the first watch, which would, which would be from 6 PM to 9 PM. The second watch, which would be from 9 PM to midnight. The third watch, which would be from midnight to three. And the fourth watch, which would be from three to 6 AM. And the cock crow happened at the end of the third watch around 3 AM. And so we know that this is late at night, very early in the morning that this is taking place. Okay. And this also alludes to us. I mean, this is generally obvious, but it appears that John wants to make this explicit to us. Jesus's trial is completely illegitimate. So first of all, uh, it appears that the entire Sanhedrin is not gathered Okay, this is the governing body of the Jewish people. The entire Sanhedrin is not gathered, only the ones that are probably sympathetic to the high priest's desires. The home of the high priest was not the usual gathering place for the Sanhedrin. They really should not have been gathering there. They had their own area on the Temple Mount in which they would gather and hold court. And it, ex- it was explicit explicitly forbidden for the Sanhedrin to meet at night for the very reason that meeting at night generally implies injustice, wanting to to push forward an ulterior motive. And so the Sanhedrin was forbidden from being at night. St. John uh, was forbidden from meeting at night. St. John wants to make explicit to us that this is, this is a kangaroo court. This is completely illegitimate. 
and they're just meeting to to push forward Jesus's death as fast and as swiftly as possible for their own motives. And Jesus himself kind of alludes to this when they begin questioning him. He has said, he says, I have spoken openly to the world. So this is in contrast to the meeting that they're having currently in private, in a private home without all the members at night, secretly they're meeting. In contrast, Jesus has always spoken openly, teaching in the synagogues and in the temple. He says, I have said nothing in secret. He even says where all the Jews come together, perhaps kind of bringing light to the idea that all the Sanhedrin is not present. So why, Jesus is saying, why are you trying me like this when I have never myself acted like this? This is a this is a part of the passion narrative that is easy to gloss over because it's just the beginning, right? Jesus hasn't been scourged yet, he hasn't been crowned with thorns, he hasn't been nailed to the cross. And yet it's a beautiful piece to find kind of focus our meditation on because because it's very real and very personal. We get here the words of Jesus. And from his words and from his demeanor, we can try to discern how he was presenting himself. Quietly, willingly, but also with a sense of resolve. Simply being honest. Look, this man is completely pure. Jesus is perfect. Completely pure. His words are completely pure. His gaze is full of love, always. But he is the truth. So he's not going to allow the truth to be concealed. His very being is the truth. And how do the people react to him? He's perfect. Perfect love. How do they react to him? Disdain. When he had said this, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus. Is this how you answer the high priest? Put ourselves in the place of St. John, who it's believed is the disciple who knew the high priest and was able to follow Jesus into the high priest's house, what would that have been like to witness someone striking Jesus very violently? What would it have been like to have that first kind of jolt of fear in your heart when you, you begin to realize things are really getting out of hand and this might not go so well? It's so easy to gloss over this part of the story, but I would encourage all of us to really meditate on this. How does Jesus react? Always composed, always loving, but he's not a pushover. Our Lord is not a pushover. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the praetorium. It was early. They themselves did not enter the praetorium so that they might not be defiled, but, but, but might eat the Passover. 
So Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have handed him over. Pilate said to him, said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. This was to fulfill the word which Jesus had spoken to show by what death he was to die. Okay, so again, we've moved through the garden, we've moved through Caiaphas's home and uh, Peter's denial, and we get to the section uh, where John recounts the trial before Pilate. And so we have this chiastic structure. And just as a quick note, it can be hard to describe a chiastic structure without like actually writing it down. So if you go to the podcast website, sundaydive.com, and you click on this episode and you scroll down, I will put the, I will write out the chiastic structure in the show notes so you get an idea. So this is the first section of the chiastic structure of uh, the trial before Pontius Pilate, where Pilate initially addresses the Jews outside. Okay. So we're told they're brought to, uh, Jesus is brought to the praetorium. Uh, Praetorium comes from the Latin word, which means like commander or general. So the praetorium is the headquarters of the Roman governor when he is in Jerusalem. Uh, Pontius Pilate did not typically stay in Jerusalem. Uh, the Roman governor of, uh, of this area typically stayed on the coast, on the Mediterranean, in, a, in an area, a town called Caesarea Maritima. And he came to Jerusalem, though, because of the Passover. And so there's a sense for the Roman officials that when you have this many Jews gathering together in a very small place like Jerusalem, there needs to be a little bit more of a government and a military presence for fear that a riot would break break out or something like that, because the Romans are, are a little bit outnumbered in this situation. And this is coloring uh, all the interactions between the Jewish leaders and Pontius Pilate, as we continue reading on through the trial, we'll hear veiled threats that the Jewish authorities make, as if to say, if you don't do, Pontius Pilate, what we're requesting of you, we are gonna, we're going to start a riot. And as a Roman governor, you did not want to have a riot uh, because when you had to have your performance review, your quote unquote performance review with uh, with uh, Caesar in Rome, uh, you did not want to have to tell him you had to shed blood to put down a rebellion. He did not like to hear things like that. People were often deposed because they couldn't handle the crowds of people. And so when the Jewish authorities keep making kind of hints at uh, Pontius Pilate not being a friend of Caesar or uh, such and such, it, it's kind of a veiled threat that they're going to start a riot, okay? So Pontius Pilate is in Jerusalem because it's the Passover for the sake of honestly keeping the peace, okay? I mean, it's fascinating because you can still feel a little bit of this tension in Jerusalem today. So I was in, uh, I was in Jerusalem in May last year during Ramadan, and we were in the city of Jerusalem on a Friday, which is the holy day of the week for the Muslim people. And there was a high Israeli military presence all around the old city of Jerusalem, but especially around the Temple Mount, because on uh, Fridays in Ramadan, 
uh, a lot of Muslims gather on the Temple Mount, okay? So there's even still kind of a sense of awareness when you get a large group of people together in an area where there's factions, okay? And there's still factions to this day in Jerusalem. And so that is coloring, um, that is emotionally charging the narrative that we're going to continue reading. So Jesus is brought to the Praetorium. And Pilate says to them, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they say, if this man was not an evildoer, we, have not have, we would not have handed him over. So they're kind of like, what are you talking about? Of course, there's an accusation. We wouldn't have brought him to you if there wasn't an accusation. And Pilate seems a little bit annoyed. And he responds, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And this appears, uh, what Pilate appears to be saying is essentially, this seems to me, I observe that this is a, this is a intra-Jewish affair. This is a problem that you guys have, so you need to work it out. And you can almost get an idea, you almost get a, a vision of Pontius Pilate saying this, judge him by your own law. I'm beginning to walk away but then the Jews say, they, they bring out this first kind of like veiled threat. It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. And you can, you can kind of imagine Pontius Pilate turning back around, understanding the gravity of what they're proposing. So for the Jews, Jesus is bothersome enough, is enough of a threat for them that they would like him to be put to death. Now, since the Romans had taken over Palestine, the Jews were no longer allowed to themselves practice capital punishment. And so the Jewish people are bringing Jesus to Pilate saying, we need you to oversee the situation of capital punishment. And John, it's fascinating, tells us at verse 32, this was to fulfill the word which Jesus had spoken to show by what death he was to die. Why? Because the death that Jesus prophesies he will die over and over again in the gospels is death upon the cross. And crucifixion was a Roman punishment. The Jews did not crucify people. The Jews, like I said, were not even allowed to conduct capital punishment. And so this makes so much sense that in the scheme of what happens in the narrative of what happens in the salvation history that God is writing here, that man, the Jews should hand Jesus over to the Romans because only by handing him over to the Romans will the prophecies come true that Jesus will die by way of the cross. Let's continue. Verse 33, Pilate entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingship is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world, my servants would fight that I might be, I might not be handed over to the Jews, but my kingship is not from the world. Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king for this. I was born and for this, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Okay. So we move down a layer in the chiastic structure. The narrative of the, of the trial before Pilate begins with Pilate speaking to the Jews outside. Now he's going to move inside and he's going to speak to Jesus inside. 
And it's fascinating because the first thing he says to them is, are you the king of the Jews? And John has not told us that the Jews have brought forward that charge. And it's possible that Pilate has heard some of the stirrings about Jesus and that for him, the only concern would be a sort of revolt, a political revolt. That's why Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus seems to be aware that no one has possibly explicitly told Pilate this. And so he answers, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate gets miffed and says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? So Pilate is still kind of trying to make sense of what's going on here. And Jesus does answer him. And he gives him this this beautiful couple of sentences about his kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingship is not from this world. All right. That's another way that it can be translated. My kingship is not from this world. It's fascinating because the only time we get uh, Jesus speaking about his kingdom in the gospel of John is at John chapter three, specifically at verse three and verse five, where Jesus is in conversation with Nicodemus. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then again, at verse five, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so for us and for John, Jesus's kingdom is clearly a spiritual kingdom. And it's a kingdom founded on the idea of spiritual unity, spiritual communion. And this makes total sense when we understand the, the economy of grace that Jesus is going to institute or the idea that the kingdom of God is the church. All right. And so Jesus's kingdom is not from the world. Jesus's kingdom is from above. It's not from here. It's from elsewhere. It has a divine origin and it's pointed towards communion, not a worldly political end. Pilate says, so you are a king. And Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. It's beautiful language here. This word witness uh, has as its Greek word uh, the same word we get in English, martyr martyr. So for Jesus to bear witness to the truth is to lay down his life, which he is going to do. And he makes this, this profound claim. Jesus does that those who are of the truth, hear my voice. Those who want the truth, hear Jesus's voice. They hear it and they recognize it. Those who don't though, those who do not want the truth, They refuse to hear the Lord's voice. They refuse to recognize the voice of the master. They deafen their ears. The temptation when I'm saying all this is to think of unbelievers, right? But we ourselves do this frequently. We frequently uh, separate ourselves from the truth and in doing so refuse to hear the voice of God. 
We do this often in the moral life, right? Where his, his desires for us are obvious. The ways that he has pointed to our happiness are obvious. But we deafen our ears to him when we want to do what is convenient for us. And like Pilate, we say, what is truth? This is one of the most ironic statements in the whole passion narrative, because what is truth? What is truth? John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so Pontius Pilate, staring at truth incarnate in the face, says, what is truth? Does he really want to know the answer? Likely not. So we have to ask ourselves, do we want to know the answer as well? Do we want to know the answer as well? Let's continue. After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no crime in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Will you have me release for you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. So continuing in the chiastic structure, first Pilate spoke to the Jews outside. Then he's going to go inside and speak to Jesus. Now he's going back outside again. And Pilate, we can see, is beginning to try to wiggle himself out of this rock and hard place. To, to, to not have to make a decision about Jesus. But it's impossible not to make a decision about Jesus. In the face of God, in the face of our Lord, in the face of truth, agnosticism is not an option. You must take a position. And so what Pilate is going to try to do is to maneuver himself away from making a decision, but that will not be allowed. He must make a decision. And so here in this little section, he tries to maneuver himself out of making a decision by offering to release a prisoner, hoping that if he puts forward um, a prisoner that is, is, is unattractive to the people, they'll choose Jesus. And so who's the prisoner that he puts forth? Uh, uh, for the people to choose between uh, Barabbas and Jesus. And we're told Barabbas was a robber. And the, the, the Greek is actually um, richer there. It's probably, he was probably a revolutionary. The fascinating thing too about Barabbas is that his name in, in the Hebrew, the Aramaic, uh, means son of the father. So Bar means son and Ava means father, right? Barabbas son of the father. And so what Pontius Pilate does is, is put in contrast for the people to decide between the true son of the father and the, the fake son of the father, right? And who did the people choose? Who do they choose? They choose Barabbas, the phony, Right? Chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. 
So we had Pilate going outside to the Jews, Pilate coming inside to speak to Jesus, Pilate going back outside to speak to the Jews, and then we get this inner narrative that that forms the heart of the chiastic structure. This is the little section, these these two verses, these three verses, is the little section that John has placed at the heart of the trial before Pilate. And if this is at the heart of the trial before Pilate, the theme at the heart of the trial before Pilate is the idea of Jesus as king, specifically Jesus as king of the Jews. What have the people been longing for in their hearts? The son of David, the king of the Jews to return. And so what do we get here? Buckets of irony is what we get here because what they are saying is, is to mock him. Their intention of what they're doing is to mock him. But in all of the mocking, they're actually speaking truth. They crown him. They array him in a purple robe and they come out hailing him king of the Jews. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. He is king of the Jews, but he's also the king willing to suffer. Not the king who grasps after power, but a king who divests himself of everything, right? This is the king that we are to follow. Verse four, Pilate went out again and said to him, said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no crime in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no crime in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law and by that law he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. So we're going to move out from the heart of the chiastic structure and we're going to get this parallel structure now. So Pilate went outside to speak to the Jews, came inside to speak to Jesus, went outside to speak to the Jews was hailed as a king. Jesus was hailed as a king. And now we get Jesus once more, or Pilate once more going outside to speak to the Jews, okay? And he says, I find no crime in him. I find no crime in him. But in a hope that he will satiate the bloodthirst of the people, he brings Jesus out, having been scourged in this, this terrible way, mocked with the crown of thorns in the purple robe and speaks this prophetic language. Pilate is a prophet, whether he realizes it or not, or not, he points to Jesus and says, behold the man, behold the man. And obviously on the surface, this, this idea that just behold the man, behold Jesus, see what I have done to them. Are you satisfied? But there's this beautiful way in which Pilate is exclaiming to us, behold the man. 
See, Jesus is the most perfect man. And he shows himself as this most perfect man, not, for example, at the transfiguration. We don't have Pontius Pilate at the transfiguration saying, behold the man. Jesus shows himself as the perfect man, the preeminent man in his poverty. Because it's in divesting himself that he is most powerful. And this is an example for each one of us because it's in divesting ourselves or at the very least embracing our poverty that we also are most powerful because God is most able to work in us in our poverty. When we step aside and we let him transform our suffering into something that is redemptive. The people don't react the way Pontius Pilate is hoping, and they still demand capital punishment, crying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate again is frustrated and says, take him yourself and crucify him. I find no crime in him. And there's a little bit of irony in, in Pilate's statement because he knows that they can't actually go crucify him. And so again, Pilate is caught between this rock and this hard place and he's trying to maneuver himself out of it, but he can't. We can't remain neutral in the face of Jesus. We can't remain neutral in the face of truth. We have to make a choice. We have to make a decision. And so Pilate is going to be forced to make a decision. And he's forced to make a decision when the people say to him, we have a law and by that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And they're referencing uh, Leviticus 24, 16 in part, he who blasphemes the name of the Lord should be put to death, right? No one can claim to be God who is not God. If they do, that's blasphemy. And so they must be, they must be put to death. Let's continue on at verse eight. When Pilate heard these words, he was the more afraid. He entered the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no power over me unless it was given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So again, following this chiastic structure, Pilate goes back inside to speak to Jesus. He wants to get to the heart of the matter. He wants to outmaneuver himself, maneuver himself out of the situation, right? Where are you from? But he won't answer. Pilate grows upset and he asserts himself over the Lord. And this is a fascinating interchange, which we all need to explore with our own sinfulness and our pride in mind. Pilate goes, fr grows frustrated with Jesus. Will you not speak to me? And then he asserts himself. Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? How many times do we speak to God in this way? How many times do we try to tell God that we can actually determine our own destiny? that we actually are in charge of what happens to us, 
whether good or bad. How often do we sin precisely because we want to be the one who determines what is right and wrong? We want to be the one that determines our destiny. This is a farce. We are creatures. We don't determine our destiny. In fact, our true destiny can only be fulfilled by God himself. Only he can fulfill our end, the desires that he has for us. We can't do this. And so Jesus answers him, and he answers each and every one of us. You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Upon this, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king sets himself against Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the, on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement in Hebrew Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he handed him over to them to be crucified. At verse 12, we have uh, kind of the height of the Jew, the Jewish authorities threat towards Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate begins to come to a decision to release Jesus. Whether there's a softening in his heart or he just has decided, you know what, this is how I'm going to deal with this situation. I'm just going to let him go. That won't work. That won't work for the Jewish people. And so they say to Pilate, if you release this man, you are not a friend of Caesar. And a friend of Caesar is actually a, an actual honorific title, designation, that, that meant you were in the favor of uh, the Roman emperor, right? And so it's possible, actually, that Pilate had been given this honorific des designation, friend of Caesar. And what the Jewish people are saying is, if you enjoy your honorific title, friend of Caesar, you had better do what we are telling you to do. Because if you do not, we will take matters into our own hands and you will risk losing your designation as a friend of Caesar, you will risk being in the favor of the Roman emperor. And so Pilate, who either is beginning to feel a softening of his heart, or at least wants to maneuver himself out of the situation by releasing Jesus, when he is, up, when he is confronted with this, this great fear, succumbs to it. And it's so fascinating. We could take like a whole nother podcast and actually compare Pontius Pilate with Adam in the garden, because many theologians say that, that what finally kind of pushed Adam, in addition to pride, what finally kind of pushed Adam over the edge to eating the fruit was fear, fear. And we see Pilate in much the same situation, right? He has his pride, you know, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you? 
But when push comes to shove, he's not willing. He's not willing to, to let go of the fear that he's being confronted with and to, to stick to what he believes to be true. To put, him so, to put himself on the side of our Lord. He's not willing to stick out his neck for Jesus. And then uh, John goes into a bit of uh, uh, kind of like side note description, but it's helpful here at verse 14. It says, uh, it was the day of preparation of the Passover and it was the sixth hour. And John wants to set the scene for us for the moment at which Jesus is condemned to death. And the scene is the day of the preparation of Passover, the sixth hour, which is noon. Why is that important? Why is that helpful for us? Why is that significant for St. John? Because at 12 noon on the day of preparation of the Passover, the Passover lambs began to be slaughtered in the temple. And so at this moment, when the slaughter of the lambs in the temple begins for the celebration of the Passover, the true lamb of God is condemned to his own slaughter. And it tells us that verse 16, they handed him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote a title and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. The chief priests of the Jews then said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and made four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was without seam woven from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They parted my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did this, but standing by the cross of Jesus, were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Pilate, again, a prophet without realizing it, proclaims to all the people, and John tells us that many people read the title above the cross, proclaims to all the people, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And the Jewish authorities, the chief priests were told, are repulsed by this. They want him to revise it. Do not write the king of the Jews, but this man said, I am the king of the Jews. That's his crime. Not that he is the king of the Jews, but he said he's the king of the Jews. And Pilate answers, what I have written, I have written. And so above Jesus, his crime speaks truth. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, Jesus crowned with thorns mounts his throne. His throne is the throne of the cross. 
when the soldiers had crucified him, they took his garments. They divided them amongst them. They do so by casting lots and John quotes scripture, uh, a fulfillment text to, to show how, uh, This scene is fulfilling scripture. They parted my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Psalm 22 verse 17, but the tunic, they can't divide amongst themselves because it was without seam woven from top to bottom. This is fascinating because the first century historian author Josephus tells us that a certain figure himself in Judaism had a seamless garment woven from top to bottom. That was the high priest. The high priest's robe was seamless, woven from top to bottom. And we're told that the disciples or the soldiers, excuse me, did not want to divide this garment among them because they didn't want to tear it. And on a practical level, that's totally obvious, but it's fascinating because it appears there that this is also fulfilling this idea of Jesus as the high priest, because Exodus 28 verse 32 forbids the tearing of the high priest's robe. And so what Jesus wears on the way of the cross and what he wears when he climbs Calvary, when he climbs the platform of his throne is the the garment of a high priest. And so here Jesus is offering himself as priest and victim upon the cross, preparing to take away our sins. If we continue uh, commenting on this section, we get this beautiful interaction uh, between Jesus, our lady and St. John. You're probably really familiar with this. Woman, behold your son. And to St. John, behold your mother. There's a practical sort of level to this, right? A woman whose husband died was taken care of by her sons. If her only son dies, she will have no standing in society. And so Jesus, looking after his mother, whom he loves with all his heart, gives her to the charge, to the care of the beloved disciple, St. John. And what a gift. I mean, really, what a gift. Uh, The most perfect woman to have ever lived. The most perfect mother. And Jesus says to St. John, have her. And we're told that from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Another way that that verb took is often translated in the New Testament is received. And that's a, that's a beautiful way to look at it, that from that hour, the disciple received her into his own home. Do we do the same? Do we do the same? Let's continue. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A bowl of vinegar stood there, so they took, so they put a sponge full of vinegar on hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, in order to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But, with, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. 
He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. So Jesus cries out, I thirst, and they give him to drink vinegar. It reminds us of Psalm 69, verse 22, for my thirst, they gave me vinegar. When Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. This is a phrase for us in English, but in Greek, it's one word, tetelestai, and it's full of meaning. It can be translated, it is finished. It can be translated, it is consummated. It can be translated, it is repaid. It has like a fiscal meaning to it. It can be translated, it is fulfilled, as in all the scriptures have been fulfilled. It can be translated, it is the end. Tetelestai comes from uh, the same kind of root as the word telos, which means end. It reminds us that uh, a few chapters earlier, John uh, chapter 13, verse one, when it tells us that Jesus loved his disciples and he loved them to the end. And if the end here is, is Jesus giving himself up to love them to the end is to love them to death. Tetelestai. It is finished. It is repaid. It is consummated. It is fulfilled. It is the end that I have loved them to. And he bowed up, bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This idea that he gave up his spirit as in his soul was taken up to the father in heaven. But it's also fascinating. Some commentators have brought up the fact that what is to come after Jesus's death and resurrection is in a way what we call the age of the spirit, right? What Jesus is going to send upon the disciples after this period is the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus in his death gives up his spirit to the father. But what is Jesus's spirit? What is the divine spirit? It's the Holy Spirit. And so what comes forth from our Lord in a way at his death is the first outpouring of the Holy Spirit. To prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross, on the Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. This would uh, cause them to not be able to lift themselves up in order to breathe on the cross. And so they would asphyxiate and they would die faster. Uh, this is also a reference to, uh, to the law, which required that, uh, that someone could not remain on the cross. So Deuteronomy uh, chapter 21 Verse 22, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. Okay, so following the law of Deuteronomy, the Jewish people want to make sure the bodies do not remain on the cross, especially because the next day is the Sabbath of the Passover, right? So Pilate complies, the soldiers break the legs of the first and then the second, but when they come to Jesus, they recognize that he is already dead, but to ensure that he is dead, they pierce his side with a spear. And John, jumping ahead to verse 37, says that this happens to fulfill the scripture. They shall look on him whom they have pierced. They shall look on him 
whom they have pierced. This is fascinating because what John is referencing here is the prophecy from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where it says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. But what I want to do is, is read for you the context of this passage, because this is really what John is hinting at, the whole context of this passage. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of compassion and supplication, so that when they look on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And Zechariah goes on to say on that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be great. Uh, the family of the house of David will mourn by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi and on and on and on. Until we get to chapter 13, verse one. And Zechariah says, on that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. What is this fountain opened up on that day for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem? That fountain is the fountain of Jesus's side. His side is pierced and out gushes blood and water, blood and water, which cleanses the inhabitants of Jerusalem from their sin and from their uncleanness. John only specifically quotes Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, but in quoting and in bringing forth this imagery, he kind of brings up a cascade of images, which is just gorgeous and profound. So Zechariah 12, 10, and then 13, 1 brings up this idea of a fountain, which cleanses the people from their sinfulness. But it also reminds us, even though John doesn't quote it explicitly, it also reminds us of Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47, verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. And the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me round on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And the water was coming out on the south side. If we think of the temple, and if you need to Google an image of the temple to get this idea, it's worth it. If you think of the temple and you think of yourself standing on the, the steps of the temple looking straight out. So if, if the temple had eyes in a way and it looks straight out, it would face east. It does face east. It did face east, face east. And in this prophecy in Ezekiel 47, the prophet Ezekiel sees water flowing from the temple and it's coming out the east side. It's issue. It's actually gushing forth. Cause if we keep reading at verse three and following the, they're going to measure the water line and it gets higher and higher and higher and higher. 
such that it gets to a point where it's deep enough that Ezekiel can swim in it. Right? So it's, it's gushing forth. The water is gushing forth from the east side of the temple, but, but, the, but, but Ezekiel is brought forth outside of the temple to, to, to the front of it, to where he sees that the, the place that it's actually gushing out of the temple is the south side, the right side. Jesus is the new temple. And cleansing water and blood flow from him, this fountain. And they flow from his right side. And if we keep reading in Ezekiel, we get this amazingly gorgeous imagery. It says he's led back along the bank of the river because this, this gushing forth is creating a river. He says, as I went back, I saw upon the bank of the river, very many trees. And I saw that the water flowed towards the Eastern region. And when it entered stagnant waters, the water became fresh. When it entered the waters of the sea, it made the sea fresh. This, this water, this blood and water, which flows forth from the side of the new temple, who is Jesus himself. It waters the whole world and whatever it comes in contact with, whether it's stagnant water or salty water, it freshens it. It freshens it. Jesus, may we be covered in the fountain of blood and water, which flows from your side and may you freshen us, Lord. This is the, this is the power issuing forth, issuing forth from Jesus, but, but even power issuing forth from the deceased body of Jesus. Imagine the power that will issue forth when he comes back from the dead. This is the power pent up in him, kind of rattling to come forth. But Jesus first, he must take his rest. Just as Adam was put to sleep and his side was pierced and out came the one whom he loves, Jesus is going to be put to sleep. His side is pierced. And from his side is going to issue forth that which cleanses his beloved. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had first come to him by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. They took the body of Jesus bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb where no one had ever been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, as the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. 